Things change from one generation to the next. Attitudes, politics, technology, even lifestyles. But when it comes to business, there's one thing every generation has in common. The pursuit of excellence. Welcome to Generation Excellence. A conversation with next-gen leaders of family businesses who are working to preserve the past and innovate the future. And now, here's the host of Generation Excellence and a third-generation business owner himself, Jamie Michelson. Jamie? My guest today, David Libertson, leads Ronin Gallery in New York, a unique generational business story. Ronin Gallery is closing in on 50 years as the leading seller and collector of Japanese paintings and woodblock prints in North America. David states, we connect with people over a shared passion. I know you will immediately sense his passion for the art and the business. This episode spans World War II, Frank Lloyd Wright, to digitization and innovation in a now clicks and mortar business. Please add this episode of Generation Excellence with David Libertson of Ronin Gallery to your collection. David Libertson from the Ronin Gallery. Welcome to the Generation Excellence podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so I'm so glad we've worked at arranging and, and getting to this. And you have, I mean, there are lots of people use the word unique and then people qualify it and they go very unique. Uh, but uh, you do with having a business that's one of the largest sellers of Japanese paintings and woodblock prints in the world. Can you just start at the start? I mean, talk about how your family and generations preceding you got into the passion for that art and kind of making a business out of it and the origin story, if you will, and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, and and origin story is a good way to describe it because uh, as a multi-generational family business, um, it's as much legend and bedtime <laughs> story as it is fact mm-hmm. at this point. Uh I guess the the story begins um, in the early 1920s with my grandfather. Uh, He was a radio officer on a merchant marine sailing ship um, in the South China Seas at Mm. that time. And he was making numerous points ports of call um, in China and Japan and Indonesia, um, wherever it, it took him. Now, he wasn't the Rockefellers who were collecting in mass and commissioning mm-hmm. ships to go over and bring back objects of art. Um, but he had a keen eye and he mm. was certainly a collector. And uh, we, we always joke that collecting is like a gene. It's like a disease, a hereditary disease that gets okay. passed down. So um, at least it is in my, my family, but uh, he would collect objects of art at each place he would make landing. And uh, one of the items that he collected was Japanese woodblock prints. If you think about the ships back then, they weren't very big. Um, right. As a radio officer, he would have a bunk and uh, uh, perhaps a small cabin, but definitely a footlocker. Okay. And the woodblock prints would fit the perfectly in the bottom of a footlocker and he could fill it up with prints and works of art on paper and put his clothing on top of it and bring it home relatively safely uh, more so than say a large sculpture uh, so one of the things that he brought back in mass was japanese woodblock prints um, my father who he he ended up owning a menswear store um, but my father who became a real estate developer and executive in new york 
uh, in the 60s and 70s grew up exposed to Japanese woodwork prints and objects of art of Japan and Southeast Asia, uh, along with his brother and his sister. Um, So my dad became quite successful early on in real estate. And one day gets a call from his, so the legend goes, again, this is before my time, um, gets a call from his brother who was in med school in Chicago. And somehow he had bumped into one of the priests from the Unitarian Church uh, in Chicago um, through making his rounds of his residency and caught wind that they were looking for funds to renovate the Unitarian Church, and they had a collection of prints that were bequeathed to them from Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh Um, So my dad's brother calls up my father and says, remember those prints that uh, dad brought back from his travels? Um, Well, I found Frank Lloyd Wright's collection or Mm. some part of Frank Lloyd Wright's collection. Um, And this church is willing to sell them if you're willing to write a check. Um, Oh, my dad, who has a keen uh, eye and uh, certainly a keen nose for a good deal, uh, jumped into his Alfa Romeo Spider Veloci, (laughs) uh, which I wish he still had. We still have the prints. There's another piece of collection, yes. Yeah, Uh, and uh, drove to uh, Chicago. Uh, wrote a check and drove back with a, a trunk filled with prints. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright had an expression that the prints choose who they love, and then there's no salvation except surrender. Wow. Um, and my father and my mother, who was an arts educator at the time, uh, really surrendered to to these prints and were absolutely captivated with them and began traveling the world uh, to collect them and quite quickly amassed um, a very large collection of Japanese woodblock prints. At that time, um, they were they really hit the right time. Um, and kind of the old guard of collectors who had begun collecting um, and families who had collected in the 1890s as Japan opened and through the 1920s were getting older and ready to pass the baton. And my father would travel the world with my mother to literally buy out entire collections from collectors. And so at what point does that go from their collectors and and they're exhibiting that work really for themselves, their family, their friends, to either putting a gallery together or making a business out of a, a dealing and, and representing this th- these works of art? Absolutely. So I think um, once you kind of build a substantial enough collection, I think at any point, at, at some point you look at it and say, well, what do we do with this? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and in the 1970s, my parents decided <clears throat> to transform an avocation into an evocation yeah, uh, right. to, to share their passion for collecting um, with the world. So again, part legend, part story. Mm-hmm. My father and my mother were also um Explorers. They were. My father was a fellow of the Explorers Club, the Royal Ge- um, and the Royal Geographic Society in London. Um, they led first contacts all through Papua New Guinea. Uh, they produced uh, the PBS documentary Wow on uh, oh, okay. uh, Papua New Guinea. Um, they led medical expeditions into the South Sudan. They traversed Borneo. Um, a number of, of notable um, expeditions where they carried the Explorers Club flag. Um, so in the 1970s, New York was rather depressed. 
and my father being in real estate and the Explorers mm-hmm. Club um, was not doing so well in terms of membership. They turned to my father and they said, uh, we have this, I think it was the third or the fourth floor, um, Admiral Perry's library uh, <laughs> that's sitting vacant um, in the Explorers Club mansion. And uh, would you be interested in renting it from us? Or what can we I do with see. it? Because you're in real estate. Um, could you help us rent it to generate some additional income? Uh, and I think my father and mother kind of looked at themselves and said, well, we could rent. Uh, should I rent this out or should we take it? In and we yeah. have this collection of artwork. And so, it, again, the same way um, the story kind of begins in the serendipitous moment of my parents stumbling upon this this ex collection of Frank Lloyd Wright and them stumbling upon this space this incredible space that uh, warranted an incredible collection within it. Uh, it. It all kind of fell together. Um, it's often described as windows or doors that open and close and you either walk through them or you don't. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also, you get the, like the business school side of it and you think about, it, it's gotta be the business plan and the book and the deck. And often these stories are, had none of that, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm, I have an MBA and, um, you know, so I, I definitely get the business plan. I've written business plans. Right. One of the things I did when I came into the business was write a business plan, exactly. right. <laughs> but it, it, again, like you said, it just seems like it, it kind of, uh, sprung into life through, through these, um, events. Um, but then from the Explorers Club mansion, uh, they opened at the exact same year, the Met had an exhibition on, um, called i think the great wave it was all juxtaposing the impressionists against the french impressionists okay uh and they were immediately successful uh because they opened the japanese woodblock print gallery at the same time that the and part of your gallery and part of the knowledge that you have about that set of artwork and frankly Wright's and others that you found is the influence that art has had on other artists and work that people may know more of than they know the Japanese woodblock. Absolutely. I think, you know, in many ways, my, my father, like I I said, he's, he has a keen nose for, for a good investment is looked at, well, I can't afford a um, Van Gogh, but I can afford the works which inspired Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And when you consider that, uh, it really makes Japanese woodblock prints because the French impressions were absolutely captivated um, by, by Japanese woodblock prints. Uh, you, you know, whether it was Van Gogh or Gauguin or Toulouse-Lautrec, um, they all, uh, Monet, they all collected and hung woodblock prints um, in their studios. Van Gogh literally copied two works uh, directly based upon Hiroshige's works. Um the the influence is deep. I mean, even the the use of uh, lettering and wording on um, posters and graphic art in the Belle Epoque in in France, uh, when when Toulouse Lautrec was making these wonderful posters, um, comes directly from from the woodblock print tradition. And then and then certainly the design architectural design work of Frank Lloyd Wright in the exactly. So, um, so is this being a podcast on generational businesses and and family controlled and operated and owned and all that 
what was the dynamic like, you know, your mother and father kind of formed this together, worked on it. What was that dynamic like of just the way the two of them ran and, and I like what you called it from, you know, the, the, the transition from into a business. So at first I, you know, I'll go kind of like before I, I, I was born in 1987. So, you know, yeah, and we'll get, we'll get, I want to get it at your uh, first exposure to the business. Of and, course. But, you know, path. I think early on, um, it was my mother at the gallery. My father was still working in real estate okay. at that time. Okay. Um, so he would kind of, my mother would go to the gallery, work in the gallery, and at uh, four o'clock when he could sneak out of the office, or he would go over to the gallery and, show up to have it just, you know just that just that is a business school thing don't give up that core job until this other thing is truly proven to be a business right I, exactly yeah um, so you know I, I think there was an aspect of that and that kind of um ran through it i mean we we before we started recording we were talking about the naming of the gallery yeah talk about um, that origin too sure so um my mother's maiden name is Ronnie Neuer, uh, Ronnie N, and the gallery is called the Ronin Gallery. Well, it has multiple meanings. Ronin is a samurai mm -hmm. without a master. It directly translates to a wave man. Um, and it also uh, is very personal because it's my mother's name and mm -hmm. maiden initial. Um, so I think in many ways early on, it was certainly her baby. Okay. Uh, and, and it's her namesake in many ways. Um, but my father was certainly the passioned collector uh, who was very involved in the buying and the acquisitions early on. And I think over time, the gallery overtook his passions for real estate. And ultimately, ah. he, he left his, his job in real estate and worked in the gallery full time, although he would argue that, you know, he was always involved in investing and in, and in the properties that he sure. that he has ownership stake in. Talk talk a little bit about the fit because there's a real estate component to this business, and you talk about that that first space that they exhibited in. What what are the, the galleries moved a few times to some mm -hmm. you know really special iconic whatever the word is sites in, in New York? Where talk about a little bit about sort of where it's gone to and and where it sits presently. Absolutely. So we've been slowly moving downtown. Uh, so the gallery first began at the Explorers Club Mansion, which I believe is in the 70s, right off of Fifth Avenue. Uh, and then we were there for about two and a half, I believe, three years. Okay. And then we moved to 57th and Madison. And we were on the second floor of 655 um, Madison Avenue uh, for a very long time, almost 30 years. Okay, core of the business. Uh, and that was a very special gallery space. It was highly designed. It had a tea house out back. Mm. Um, I mean, I grew up in that gallery space. Uh, so to, to me, it's it's kind of this vision of the gallery that I, as I first knew okay. it. Um, then when that space became too expensive, because we were always rented. Ah. Um, and that you know rents move up sure uh, it became very expensive it ended up being leased to a hairdresser we should have been in the, we're in the wrong business <laughs> and we moved up to the fourth floor um and then on the fourth floor we, we were there for another 10 i'd say another 
five years. And at that point, my parents kind of made the decision that they were going to slow down unless I were, was going to get into the business. So they started dealing more privately to, uh, for about five years Okay. Um, on the 10th floor of 425 Madison Avenue. Um, uh, then we, that's on 49th and Madison Avenue. That was kind of more of a, just an office space. Uh, and that takes us to 2012. After I graduated business school, I decided to come into the business and we expanded to the third floor of 425 Madison. And again, more of an office space. Uh, and one of the bits of advice that my parents told me early on when I decided to come into the business is, uh, look at the amount of money you're going to be spent coming. I, I worked in real estate as well. My family's still okay. in real estate, involved in okay. real estate. So um, from my real estate background, um, I worked in real estate finance as well as uh, sales and, and brokerage for a period of time. Um, look at how much you're going to spend in rent over the sure. course of a 30 year business <laughs> and think about all the money that's just disappearing, that you're working for the landlord, those months that are tight where you are literally working to pay the rent. Um, and then extrapolate backwards what you could purchase a space for, what the payback period for it would, what it would be for it, um, what you could borrow money and look at that cost and kind of say, okay, this is what I could spend. And then see if the market has that. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And that began a three-year process of finding a space to purchase. I knew what my budget was. I knew that I wanted to build a truly highly specific space where I could store and exhibit uh, eight, 10,000 wood. And that's a big part of it, right? Exhibit, but also store. Store. And, I mean, yes. you, we have um, 8,000 prints. Where do you put them? I mean, we have 110 flat file storage drawers on site right now. <laughs> There's no space that you're going to find in New York City that's going to have 110 flat file storage drawers out of the box. Um, so you, you end up... Uh, and agencies designing. used to have a lot of flat file storage drawers. We'd yeah, but not them. anymore. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They've all been demoed and gotten rid of. Uh, yeah. So that began that process. And then, you know, we looked for an architect began the process of designing a space that I really involved my um, parents in. Okay. Uh, but that's a deep, we could go down a rabbit hole. Here. Sure. Sure. Know. No, no. And and so in that location or that space is where now? So we are right off of Bryant park. We're at okay. 32 West 40th street. We are in a building that was built in 1907 by Andrew Carnegie. It was the historic engineers club of America. Mm -hmm. So it just feels very appropriate that the gallery, which was founded in the Explorers Club, returns to a historic clubhouse. Yeah, that's great. Um, full circle. Uh, what we purchased used to be the historic tap room of the club. So it has leaded stained glass windows and, uh, you know, 18 foot ceilings. Um, and, you know, exposed brick and a beam, a steel beam that was signed by Andrew Carnegie. Uh, so it's a space that has a lot of history. Nikola Tesla, Thomas Edison, Charles Lindbergh, Herbert Hoover, mm. Andrew Carnegie all stood in the gallery connecting over a shared passion, which at that time was engineering. And we returned this space to a place where people connect over a shared passion, um, that being Japanese woodblock prints. So uh, it almost feels like that then requires you and whoever even if we talk about follows on from you innovation in this business 
you know, you, you wouldn't be doing justice to where it sits if you're not kind of bringing that to, to the business. Is that fair? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think very early on, we identified that the art world is a very staid industry. Mm -hmm. People do things a very specific way. Hmm. They get accustomed to doing things a very specific way. Um, and there's a lot of barriers to entry. It's very expensive <clears throat> to really get started in the art world. It would be very difficult for me to go out and accumulate sure. the, the collection that we have to put us in this position today if it wasn't done generationally. It takes time, right? It takes time. Um, so, but you have to continue to innovate. You can't just rest on your laurels. When I took over the business, we still had paper ledgers. Mm -hmm. You have a collection that has been built over, uh, which is going to be our 47th year in business, 47 years. You have the purchase receipts on paper ledgers that go back. <laughs> Nothing had been digitized. And after 47 years, the staff that my parents had in place and their way of doing things was their way of doing things. I understand. Um, so part of it is just opera operationally, um, updating. It's not truly innovating. It's just updating. Um, but then, you know, I also came into the business at a time when the internet was blowing open the art world. So you had an art world that was geographically constrained, uh, historically when the gallery was founded, you had to be in New York city to participate in the these art hours at this physical place, yeah. physical place. You have to put eyes on art. You can't buy, you're not buying an art site. On, I mean, maybe some people do, right. but you know, they have someone else looking at it. They have an art advisor who knows their taste, hopefully. Um, but you have to put eyes on art. So geographically constrained. Then you have um, at that point, my parents in the eighties created a mail order art business. They started sending catalogs. Hmm. So they would do an exhibition, create a catalog, and then give people the opportunity to purchase through the catalog, um, as well as in the gallery. So that was young listeners. That's direct to consumer. It, it's yep. done in different forms. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, that was, um, very innovative for the time. Sure. And, uh, uh, then, you know, we, in the early 1990s, my parent, my mom created a landing page online. Okay. So we had a digital gallery that told you where we were. And very smart. Uh, she purchased a tremendous number of domain names. Okay. To allow us to claim real estate similar um, in the digital realm. Yeah, that's an interesting. I hadn't thought of it as real estate. People would look at that as I'm th that's real estate. Yeah. yeah. Um, so laid the groundwork for a model that kind of wasn't obvious when I took over, but definitely I could think they had thought about it. And that is this click and mortar model where I took the business, which mm. is the geographic, the Art world tried to, make, to to break down geographic constraints by creating art fairs, but art fairs still are geographically and temporarily restrained because it's at a certain time and it's at a certain place. And you have to be there at that time and at that place to participate. That's why people fly to Basel, but it centralizes it and it creates a, a flurry of activity. Sure. But the internet 
completely demolishes that. It busts the art world wide open because all of a sudden it democratizes it because anyone can participate in the art world. You don't have to get on a plane. You don't have to spend money on gas. You don't have to buy a Metro card. You don't have to live in New York. You don't have to go to Basel, Switzerland or Miami. (laughs) You know, you can participate um, from the comfort of your home with anything but a computer. So, Again, my, my parents, I think, had recognized this opportunity with the, their mail order and buying these domain names, but hadn't actualized it. So Got it. I saw that and began heavily investing in the digital space early on and encouraging that. But once we created this best-in-class digital experience, um, which is still continuously being rebuilt, we just rebuilt it with Oracle NetSuite, um, which has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but... That's my first ever sponsor integration, I think. And they're not even. (laughs) So, um, but, but then we had to have a physical space that warranted it because I realized that art is a slow sales cycle business. Sure. So you're not going to just go online and impulse buy a work of art for $25,000, $100,000. You might do that with a hundred dollar work, but certainly not a very expensive work. So, we, I looked at it and said, okay, we have to be a digital first business because even the decision to come into the gallery to look up where we are, because we're not a storefront street-facing business, okay. Okay. inside a, a, a building, begins by looking up our address. So you need to have, that's the first customer touch point. You need to have a first-class experience there. Um, but then that's going to probably lead them into the gallery. And then you have to complement that with a first class physical experience, because after that you have won the customer, if they come in and they feel comfortable digitally and physically, then they could go home and purchase online frictionlessly without any, any concern. They built trust. The whole business is built on trust. Hmm. So it's about having a physical experience that complements a digital experience it's about the changing face of retail, that retail is experiential um, and the digital is because become transactional. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful how a business like yours brings in, you know, in my quote day job in the agency and serving clients, all of those things you just talked about, the digital representation, the physical space, the customer experience, the trust that's built, the the knowing that it takes time to to make a sale and then the sale and then what happens after the sale and, and all that. We, I don't we, want to we, sell one work of art to you. I don't want, we, I don't want to sell you just an accumulation of artwork. I want to help you build a collection and to do that, I invest in you, you invest in me. And then I take an, an advisory consultancy role and we build a long-term relationship. And it feels um, like that passion that goes to your grandfather and then was passed through the people who come and look, but actually ultimately buy, collect, have pieces from you. There's a transference of that, right? There's a, there's a lineage, there's, we're talking about legacy and lineage business, but there's that with the customers. I mean, you're really it's, tied together. It's um, so this is kind of a catchphrase, but it's a good one. So I'm going to use it. Uh, we don't connect with people over a transaction. We connect with people over a shared passion. Um, because if you begin at the passion for the art, 
and making sure people are having an actual visceral reaction with it and are going to be happy when they take it home, the transaction follows. Sure. No, I, I like, I, I mean, I wanted to ask you most of these interviews, I ask people about mission or vision or whatever's on the walls, but you're a gallery. So you have something different on the walls, but what you just, what you just outlined is, is great. We, we glossed over a little bit on, sure. you know, the, your, so talk about your first memory of this as a business or the gallery or the, your parents discussing it. And then your journey and, you, you, you know, you mentioned being in doing something else in real estate and real estate finance and business school and getting into the business. But I, I'm really interested if you were always on a path to do this, if you were going to do something else and then it found you, your, 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 your take on that joining the family business. Certainly. Um So my earliest memory of the gallery, it's kind of skewed because there's a picture Uh of me in the gallery at like two years old or maybe one years old. Uh I don't know. I don't really remember it, but I, I think because it's, and I'm on the, I'm, I'm on the phone. You know, I'm not really on the phone, but I'm playing with the phone and it looks like I'm on the phone. And uh, I, I, I like that. Yeah. The image. Uh, I think it's kind of fun, but uh, I remember riding my tricycle around the table in the old gallery <laughs> at 425 Madison Avenue. Um, I wrote a college admissions essay about growing up with the great wave hanging over my crib, which okay. at times it did because I had a crib in the gallery and we've had sold great waves. Um, there is a place on a George Nakashima conference table that I've carved my name into. I got into a tremendous amount of trouble for. So I remember doing that. Uh, I remember locking myself in the bathroom accidentally of the old gallery and being <laughs> terrified. Um, I remember being playing my having my first Game Boy and having the framer our framer at the time uh, beat a level I was stuck on. So, you know, there's all of these just warm memories that I have at the gallery from my childhood growing up. Wonderful. So for for me, the gallery, like you said, is as much a business as it is a legacy. Um, It's part of who I am. I mean, the nice thing about working in a family business and growing up in it is you always have something to talk about around the dinner table and you become ingrained in it through osmosis because you are just surrounded by the discussions um, of the business on on multiple levels. Uh, So, I mean, at at, I think like seven years old, my parents had an opening and I think I sold my first work of art. I mean, I think it was to a family friend and like, that's nice. You're on the phone at one or two and you're selling at seven. So you're a prodigy. You know, so it was, but I, I don't think I actually, I mean, I was cute. I was a cute kid. No, you can't tell. Did, about you, anymore, did you, but. you talk about that college essay then were you, did you always have plans of going in this business? No, but you know what? It was a unique aspect about my life was that sure. I had grown, grown up in this business and it had defined who I was growing up in it. Um, but for a, period of time, I, I really didn't want to grow, go into the family business. So, um, 
you know, I thought for a long time I was, so I went to college and at first I was going to declare for art history and um, archaeology. Okay. Do a double major in those two. I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I thought, okay. <laughs> I, I thought that was a, a good job description. And uh, my, you can't declare a major. I went to William and Mary right away. You have to wait a certain period right. of time before you to declare. But that's what I was going for, and I took those classes. And then I applied for the business school, the undergraduate business school, which is a competitive program to get into. And uh, I believe at the beginning of my sophomore year, at the end of my freshman year, my father kind of said to me, you know what, study business, get study the boring things, study the things that you, you aren't going to want to learn later on down the road. Are you mm -hmm. going to want to learn accounting? No, but you're going to need to know accounting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. And he said that, you know, you will have the rest of your life to devote to the things that you are passionate about. So the nice thing about working in the arts is you learn something every day. I'm surrounded by books. I'm constantly researching and studying. Um, I don't want to constantly research and study accounting. Insurance and accounting. Insurance and accounting. Yeah. Corporate finance. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So his advice to me early on was, you know, if you could get into this program, study the practical aspects, kind of mm. learn the vocational aspects, um, and then, you know, because I have the ability to devote my life towards um, a kind of a passion. Uh, so that, that kind of pivoted when I got into um, business school. And then I kind of thought I wanted to go more into the business route. I tried to wanted to work in real estate, right. um, which is another side of the family business. Uh, but again, it's, it's sales oriented. So they were applicable both, real estate and art are uh, inefficient markets. Mm. Um, so there, there's overlap between the two. They're, they're very valuable objects and, and parts of people's portfolios and possessions. Um, so I worked in real estate for a period of time uh, until I went back to get my MBA. Um, and when I went back to get my MBA, I studied uh, I, was, I double majored after pivoted over from art history and archaeology to um, business, finance, and economics. Uh, and then I went back to get an international MBA from Boston University. And at the, when I finished that, my parents kind of let me know, listen, we're getting older. We're either going to retire um, and really wind down this business, or you kind of have to step into one, yeah, no, that, that I, I have a similar experience with kind of having that kind of conversation with with yeah. with family. Not that it was about winding down, but just my declaring my intention. I had to declare my intentions because up until that point, I had helped out at the gallery. I had always helped out. Similar to my father leaving, I would come in on the weekends. I would help out uh, if there was um, a surge in packaging and shipping. I mean, you do what you need to do for your. So family, it sounds. But. I mean, it sounds like a relatively orderly, non-dramatic kind of transition from no. your parents as founders to you as the next generation. Uh, you know, because sometimes that second generation has to effectively wrest control from the founders and their baby or whatever. But no, it was it was it was very orderly. I mean, there was there's succession management in any business. Sure. It's, I'm not going to say that it was without friction, um, but it was certainly something that 
there was an understanding that they didn't that they were winding down and I was winding up. Um, I think the pandemic mm-hmm. certainly sped up that process in a major way. Uh, because at that point, everything went digital and I we had to run the business remotely. Um, and being that they were older, they were more susceptible and stayed out of the business longer. Um, so, and also, I think it was proof of concept that this digital model that I had been championing, this digital first model, was the right way to go because we made it through the pandemic without having to uh, lay anyone off. Wonderful. Or, yeah, no, that's great know. to hear. Yeah. We, we, we got close to that, but you know, you really, I mean, that was some, some dark and scary times. Really I like was. that kind of winding down, winding up. How to talk just a little bit about how you all as a, as a family organization, how you make decisions. About sure. so, so right now, um, I mean, everything's a discussion, uh, but at this point in time, it really is my business. I okay. have the ability to, implement, I sign contracts, I, I make decisions. Uh, clearly, I have kind of the the ultimate decision process. And my parents haven't trusted me with that. And like I said, um, yeah. that came out of the fact that, uh, um, I mean, I, I, I actually have full control legally at this point, but um, in terms of the actual ownership stake in of the business. So they're, they're, they're more than now really in an advisorial, you know, advisor to you, um, counsel to you on the business. But, but right? that's uh, my mother's in the office today. And, so, okay. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're certainly in that role. But, you know, if I were to decide to close down the business or, or do something really drastic, I'm sure that would be a much bigger decision. Um, but the decision to take this space that was something that was discussed and we had buy-in from everyone. And the decision of how we built out the space was one that was done in tandem because I want to benefit from all of their experience. They have so much more experience in this space than I do. And, you know, uh, they still have more to teach, you know, than, than I've learned. (laughs) Uh, So great attitude. There's, there's innovation that I could implement, but I still have to be respectful of where we came from. You can't, you can't completely 360. You could, you could develop um, and build upon the past. Uh, and I think that's, that's important. You got to look at those building blocks. Yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, I, I share that same approach with you. It's like respect that history and past and all that, but know that you got to move forward too. And, and 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 what calls you make and what calls you don't or what decisions you make or don't. So what what are you excited about in in the future for the Ronan Gallery and the business? So here's the thing: we we built this incredible new gallery space, really incredible space. Um, opened it October of 2019. <laughs> yeah, I saw <laughs> yeah, that coming. Like like five months later, it was closed. Uh, I used the pandemic to totally revamp our digital space. Understand? Um, I was at home. I could work with developers. I had lots. Of, I mean, we all had time on our hands, and um, I had the ability to really look at our systems to to make sure that we were uh, positioned for the next the next uh, uh, twenty thirty years. Um, so now is this integration moment? Okay. Where all of a sudden, this idea of being digital first. Um, and having it complement the brick and mortar 
is actually coming to fruition and we're actually able to see that. Um, and it's really nice to be able to. That's see great. That. I mean, you're really, you're talking about dealing with some things that, you know, some of the largest businesses on the planets are wrestling with and the smallest businesses that are just finding Shopify or something as a way to do a new way of delivery. You know, you look at best practices from the largest companies and you scale them back to a human level mm -hmm. and then you implement, uh, there are certain things that I simply can't do because of my, my scale and my scope, right. but you take what do you think represents your brand the best and you implement those and you bring it forward. Uh, but there's a lot to be learned by looking at uh, the case studies of what these big businesses do. And it's, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is the same issues that are facing um, fortune 500 companies that are facing a business with five employees. And what, what do you do? I mean, you mentioned, you know, you get together with family and you have, do you have siblings there? I don't, you know, yeah. okay. So it makes things a little easier <laughs> yourself and your parents. And, you know, that's good that you'd be around the table and talk about the business. Sometimes then, you know, everything's a meeting. So what, uh, what do you yourself do to kind of uh, get away from the business? If, if, or, or, find that balance, clear your head, whatever it is. Uh, I mean, cause travel in your business is part of the business cause you're part looking, of the business. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what, what are, what are, what are those, those things for you that kind of balance that out? Sure. So first and foremost, you don't get into this business. If you are looking for a career, you get into it because you're looking for a lifestyle Okay. because you live this business. When you're an art dealer, you live the art dealing business. Um, you know, after work today, I'm going to a gallery opening. You know? I mean, that's what that, you know, so um, it's what you do. You live and you breathe the art world. Uh, and when you travel, you're absolutely right. You're traveling um, because there's an auction or a sale or a collection that you're going to, to see, but you're also in Paris for a week or you're in Tokyo. I mean, it's, it's a nice life. Um, and it's one that can be very lucrative um, if done well. Uh, but I think that's why so many people fail because it's the, the lifestyle is very um, alluring and mm. you, you get sucked into it. Um, so, but when I travel, you know, I am away from the business. Uh, so I am often traveling with my wife or by myself and that, that hasn't been the case for the last couple of years, but of course, yeah. um, you know, it's very nice. All of a sudden you're out of the office, you're, you're having, dinner at a French bistro after previewing an auction at the Drouot and you say, wow, this is a pretty nice life. And it makes you think about all the time you spend in the office and it's all worth it. Right. Um, so there's that, but also sometimes you really got to get away. I love skiing. Um, I find that time spent skiing doesn't count when you're on the mountain, going down a mountain, you're not thinking about uh, the issues um, in the office. Cause if you are, you're, putting, you're maybe not making the best decisions on the mountain. So that I find really wonderful. I like scuba diving. Uh, I think that when you're underwater, again, you're, you have to be mindful of a lot of different things. And um, it's really practicing mindfulness. Uh, it's like a meditation. I was going to say, they're kind of meditative pursuits in a way. Yeah. Um, so I find that uh, I have a wonderful property up in the Berkshires. I love to work, get my hands in the dirt. I feel very connected that way. Um, I'm building a garden this summer so I could grow some vegetables. So that's looking forward to it. But uh, a lot of what I do when I need to get away is 
try to find these kind of meditative pursuits where I could clear my mind. Cause when you run a family business, it's on your mind all the time. <laughs> and that's lovely with how I described the travel and all of that, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes there's issues. I mean, me and my parents don't get along all the time. Uh, um, there could be issues with an employee or, you know, a disgruntled customer, or we try not to have too many of those, but they do occur. And if you take that home and you let it eat you up inside, uh, it, it destroys what you love about the business. Sure. I mean, so, somebody in one of these interviews talked about business being, you've solved problems and then there's it, business is always new problems. You're never problem free and exactly. you better be ready for the treadmill to continue and continue of issues, things you have to deal with, address, solve. But you got to enjoy it. And enjoy I mean, and enjoy. You got to enjoy it. I mean, you got to enjoy the problem solving and, uh, you know, the, the continuous improvement of it all. Yeah. Which kind of, I mean, that continuous improvement almost comes back to some Japanese principles in a way, too, which is absolutely, really, yeah. yeah, you know, so. So you, you mentioned your wife, is there, are, do you have children or is there a. Uh, Working on that. As, okay. So there's. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I would love to, to have a, have a family raised much like I was in the gallery. Yeah. But I would, you know, my, this business was never forced upon me. Great. It was a decision. I love how you answer I, all the questions I have without me having asked the question. <laughs> I, just, I just let you go. It, it, it wasn't. It was offered to me. There was always an understanding that it was there for the taking. Um, but there was never a absolute, absolute, you know, right. you have to do this. And I would want the same for, for my family. I would love nothing more for them to enjoy it and be passionate about the art. But if they're not passionate about the art or the business, I'd rather they go off and find something but they, they're going to they, be passionate about. Yeah. And we have, I have that same approach with my children, but I'm the same. I was never forced or thrust it. it but then if you find it your way and, and, and there are some people who they're told you're going to be in this business and they have no choice and they've done great things with those generational businesses too. I've, by chronicling these in this podcast, I've seen both of those. Well, there's there's not two. There's other paths, but those few paths that exist to kind of getting in or. I mean, ultimately, I was forced to make a decision because they were going to close or not. Make a decision, but you but, have that option. Exactly. You had options. Yes. So, so no, not a third generation involved now or on the horizon, but but thinking about it. So, when you and your parents to have a little bit of reflective moments, and it's sort of the. Last question, and the only one I know yeah. that I've asked in every episode is, what is the most fulfilling thing for you about the Ronin Gallery, this this generation, this now generational family operation gallery business? So the family aspect of it. So, you know, if I had to describe our kind of corporate culture, even, okay. it's family, you know, we are a small business. I have employees. My, my team that I've built uh, has been with me for about seven years. Um, we don't have tremendous turnover. Right. Uh, we had an employee who retired after being with us for 45 years. <laughs> um, I spend almost as much time with these people as I do my wife and my, parents and yeah. my family. Um, 
our, we have a beautiful office because we spend as much time in the office as we do at home. And I want to enjoy the time that I'm spending with the people that I surround myself with. And I want to make sure that this is a nice place for people to come in and the people I work with also can enjoy their time. Um, so it's about trust. It's about family. It's about coming in with empathy every day and actually looking at people as real people. Because again, everyone who works here is working here because they're passionate about what we're doing. Mm, yeah. Um, so I think having that, some people hate having a family business. I, I loved it. I grew up loving it. Um, and I think that I want to share that love and passion for the business with everyone. Um, the other great thing is I get to spend my day around beautiful works of art every day. Right. I mean, what could possibly be better than that? So, uh, you know, I get to scratch that, that collector gene, which I inherited mm -hmm. from my grandfather um, and keep it going. And I keep building our collection. We have a personal collection that continues to grow as well. So um, we don't just sell the art. We put our money where our mouth is and really believe in it. I got um, it. And love it. Well, David, I, I thank you for sharing that, that passion and fire that you have for your family business for what it's, you know, built on and, and, and does. And, and I guess I get in a way for adding to my little collection, I don't have a footlocker. I put them in, but of these podcast episodes on generation excellence, I, I, I mean, I'm, I cannot wait till the next time I get to come to New York so I can visit Absolutely. the gallery, see the art, see some of your team, maybe meet your family, whatever. Uh, and uh, any any last thing I neglected to ask about or that you wanted to get across or? No, I, I just had a great time talking with you. Today. Yeah, I did so too. I appreciate time, the opportunity. Time really flies. Uh, thanks again, David. All right, appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Sam Daly, Eric Head, and Joel Bienenfeld at SMZ for helping make Generation Excellence, well, excellent. Until next time, I'm Jamie Michelson.